Well, millennials, you're up again. Sorry about that. But you're in the spotlight. Millennials, those people born roughly between 1981 and 2004. You guys, many of you are millennials, are going to be the first generation since at least 1940 not to be as well off financially as your parents. Sorry about that. No, just kidding. But for instance, a 30-year-old in 2013 was worth 21% less than a 30-year-old in 1983. Meanwhile, the net worth of the average 60-year-old today is more than twice as high as it was in 1983. So let me just boil that down. Young people keep getting poorer while old people keep getting richer. (laughs) But that's a really unexpected trajectory for us, isn't it? Downward instead of upward. Backward instead of forward. Ross Chetty, a, a Stanford Institute economic policy researcher, says this. One of the defining features of the American dream is the ideal that children have a higher standard of living than their parents. That's just the way it's supposed to be, right? Always doing better than the generation that came behind you in your own life. Being better off 10 years from now than you are now, and 10 years beyond that, being better off than you were then. You kind of get the picture. And that's the trajectory that is instilled in all of us. It's one of those Givens of life, and it spills over into our spiritual lives as well. You go, the trajectory is bigger, better, more power, more influence. For instance, rarely do you hear of a pastor who progressively goes to smaller and smaller and smaller congregations, right? No, onward, upward, bigger, bigger, bigger. Well, this new unexpected reality reminds all of us not to make assumptions, right? And to check our expectations in life so that we all take a moment to ask, is my trajectory God's trajectory for my life? Of course, God is always calling all of us upward in that we Day by day, love him more, know him more. That's a given, onward, upward in that way. But how do we live out that love for the Lord? How do we live out the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is the setting in which God would have us do that? Should we assume that it will always be upward for us? Or might God be calling us in a different direction? to accomplish his will and build his kingdom. All of us have to be willing to say, we must be willing to say, Lord, where you lead me, I will follow. And I hope we'll be convinced of that as we come this morning to the passage we have before us. It's in the book of Deuteronomy, the 31st chapter. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 31, and when you found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand so we can hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 31, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. 
Then Moses went out and spoke these words to all Israel. I am now 120 years old, and I'm no longer able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you, as the Lord said. And the Lord will do to them what he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, whom he destroyed along with their land. The Lord will deliver them to you, and you must do to them all I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Given thanks already this morning. We, we do it again now. Thank you for an opportunity to return to Deuteronomy, these verses, and to dig more deeply uh, into your truth and to see what changes you would have us bring in our lives, to see how much, Lord, we are willing to submit to your truth and to your will and to your way for us. So we pray, Lord, that you would teach us and change us through the power of your spirit, as we come together around your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This passage that we have before us this morning clearly contains some of the very last words that Moses is ever going to speak on this earth. And so it's easy at this point to look at the trajectory of the life of Moses. At this point, It's not going to take, his life is not going to take another change or a dramatic change in direction. And so we can see that the life of Moses easily breaks up into three different stages of 40 years each. Stage one, Moses is adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh. You know the story of Egypt. And he literally grows up in the lap of luxury. The best of everything is available to Moses. Material trappings, educational opportunities. Scripture says that Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was powerful in both speech and action. So you name it, Moses had it. Moses was poised. Moses was privileged for an upward trajectory, no doubt about it, if that had been God's trajectory for him. But you know the story. That thing happened. Suddenly, unexpectedly, unpremeditatedly, Moses witnessed an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew slave. And the Hebrews were his own people, ethnically speaking. And Moses' anger got the best of him. And so he lashed out and he killed that Egyptian. And in that moment, his life changed. He instantly became a fugitive, and so stage two of Moses' life begins. Because he had to flee Egypt, and he lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. Now, Midian was a desert place, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And that's where Moses went, and he lived as a shepherd. He lived there for the next 40 years, away from the city, away from city life, away from culture deprived of position and influence. This would definitely appear to be a downward trajectory for Moses. And I 
feel quite certain he would have declined an invitation to his class reunion, right? Because he wouldn't want to endure the pointing and the whispers. Look, is that Moses? What's that garb he's wearing? Why does he smell that way? What a shame. Moses had it all, right? Well, after 40 years in Midian, Moses' life took another turn. You know that story as well. God called to Moses from the burning bush. And he said, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to lead my people into freedom. And so this begins the next stage, the third stage of Moses' life. And you know that story. For the next 40 years, up into the passage that we have read this morning, Moses spent unsettled, wandering around in the desert. The years that we generally refer to as the golden years, years that are supposed to be marked by stability and settledness and security, not so much, not for Moses. He was constantly on the move and he was constantly trying to lead people who constantly complained and rebelled against the Lord. And so this one quote will sufficiently characterize Moses' feelings about stage three of his life. Once again, all the people of Israel are standing at their gates, at their tents, and they're whining and they're complaining and they're weeping and they're wailing. Moses said to the Lord, to the Lord, why are you treating your servant so harshly? Have mercy on me. What did I do to deserve the burden of all these people? I can't carry all these people by myself. The load is far too heavy. If this is how you intend to treat me, just go ahead and kill me. Do me a favor and spare me this misery. So while stage two of Moses' life seemed to be a downward trajectory from the prestige and the glitz and the power of Egypt, at least stage two for Moses was a quiet life a peaceful life of manageable responsibility. When Moses finished shepherding, he got to return home to a wife and two sons. In comparison, stage three then continues its downward trajectory. And so the question is, what makes this trajectory that seems only to be going in the wrong direction, how is it acceptable? How can you live with it? Well, the answer is faith. Faith that God knows what he is accomplishing in all the changes of direction in our lives. Faith that God knows what he's doing in all the changes of direction of our lives. Faith is what marked the life of Moses from its beginning to its end. Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater Wealth and the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt. By faith he kept the Passover. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. 
So you get the point. By faith, by faith, by faith. And so it's only by faith that you and I as individuals and we together as a church can trust our trajectory to God, right? To hold it loosely, realizing that the trajectory that we have placed ourselves on may not be the one that the Lord has for us. And it's going to require faith on our parts every single day of our lives. And that's where the challenge comes in for all of us every day. Will we, by faith, submit to God's will? It was difficult for Moses as well. Look at the end of verse 2. Moses says there, The Lord has said to me, You shall not cross the Jordan. Crossing the Jordan. If Moses had a bucket list, any of you have a bucket list? If Moses had a bucket list, this would be number one on the bucket list, crossing the Jordan. It's what Moses wanted most in his life, entering the promised land. It's what would validate Moses' life. Crossing the Jordan would make all the trials and all the heartaches of of leading these people worth it. It might even make stage three of his life outshine stage one, crossing the Jordan. But God said, no. Moses begged, Oh Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Imagine the Lord saying that to you. Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. And so it's futile to attempt to change the trajectory. God said no, and he meant no. Not because God is cruel, not because he is unkind, but because he is a sovereign God and he alone knows how all things work together. All things work together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so God's no to Moses that we've read about. It's one of those other pet passages for people in our culture who who want to hate God and want other people to hate God. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we we looked at another one of those. How our culture looks at the cross and says, oh, that is nothing but cosmic child abuse, right? Well, here is another one, not far behind it. People who hate God have a heyday with this one. Well, after all Moses did, All those years leading all those people after all he did. And now the Lord does this to him. Moses makes one little mistake and God says, you don't get to go to the promised land. Who wants to serve a God like that? I don't know if you've ever heard that. I've heard that many times in my life. Will you allow me to probe this one little mistake? (laughs) Please say yes. Let's probe this one little mistake of Moses. 
because it has a direct impact on our abilities to submit ourselves to God's trajectory for our lives. In fact, it's, it, it's the heart of why we strive for our own way over against the Lord. So why was the Lord angry with Moses? What was Moses' one little mistake, as it's so commonly called? Well, the people of Israel were in the desert. And because they're in the desert, naturally they are thirsty. And you know this story. The people are complaining. And so the Lord says, Moses, take your staff and you and your brother Aaron, gather the assembly together, speak. Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. So that's what God commanded. This now is what Moses did. Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he had commanded him. So far, so good. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. So far, so good. And then Moses said, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and he struck the rock twice with his staff. And water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. Okay, not so good. And the Lord was displeased with Moses' action. And he said, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me, as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Do you realize the severity of what you do when you do not set apart God as holy in the sight of others? Do you realize the damage you do when you suggest that God is not worthy of honor? Eh, it's just God. Do you realize the damage you do when you model that you believe that God really can't be trusted in all things, even in a desert where there is no water? Do you realize the damage you do when you take credit for the work that the Lord does? All of this is what Moses did. And Moses didn't just do it across the dinner table in his tent with a few of his most intimate friends. Moses did what he did in front of the entire nation of Israel. Moses said, listen to me, you rebels. Must we, Aaron and I, must Aaron and I bring water out of this rock? And so instead of, instead of speaking to the rock, he struck it. Bam, bam. As if my power is bringing water out of this rock. When we demonstrate with our lives and our actions that the Lord can't be trusted. When we demonstrate that he should not be honored or obeyed, we do immeasurable harm to others. We cripple them in this life and possibly for eternal life when we do not honor God and his holiness and his trustworthiness before their eyes. And so the punishment for this sin and the crippling effects that this sin had on the nation of Israel, they must be punished severely. Here's what we want. We want God to relent. We want Moses to be able to say, Lord, I'm sorry. And we want him not to face the consequences for his sin because we devalue discipline. 
And we think God is harsh when he disciplines his people. And so no wonder we seek our own trajectories. It's just our culture. It's the way we were raised. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Dr. Spock. Put your hands down. Now raise your hand if you've ever heard of Dr. Spock, not from, not Star Wars, what is it? Star Trek. Raise your hand if you've heard of Dr. Spock, not from Star Trek. Good. So a few of you have heard of Dr. Spock. The Dr. Spock of whom I speak was a pediatrician. And in 1946, he wrote a book entitled Common Sense Book of Baby and Child Care. According to his website, he's dead. He died in the 90s, but his book is still being sold. His book has sold 50 million copies, second only to the Bible. It's a lot of books, right? So in this book, Dr. Spock, who is one of the first pediatricians also trained in psychoanalysis and Freud and all that, he was writing as a reaction to the rigid approach of child raising in his day. In his day, people were were saying, you know, raise your children with fixed schedules, fixed feeding schedules and fixed bedtime schedules. Teach your children respect for authority. Parents were encouraged not to respond to their baby's tears and to make them eat their peas whether they like them or not. Excessive affection was discouraged. And to prevent sickness in the days before there was penicillin, parents were encouraged only to kiss their children right here on their forehead. Dr. Spock didn't like any of this. And so while it's true that Children need affection. They need to be understood and respected. That's all good. They are created in the image of God. They also need to be trained and disciplined. But Dr. Spock did not agree. This is just a little cultural analysis, okay? You you, you can bear with me. His counsel was for self-indulgence instead of self-control. Parents were advised to accommodate their children's feelings and to cater to their child's preferences. And so naturally, children vented that expression when they were given the freedom to do so. I don't like my peas. I won't eat my peas. Oh, okay, honey, let me take your peas away. Instant gratification was the new goal and the more child-centered a home became, the more defiant the children became. Dr. Spock's approach was for freedom of expression instead of restraint. Now, faith is believing. I'm getting somewhere with this, but I am. Let's do the math. Do the math with me. If you were a newborn in 1946, or say you're one or two years old, and you belong to one of the 750,000 households that bought the book in its first year of publication, or go forward to 1952, when there were 4 million households with this book, how old are you in, let's see, 1966... 1968, you know, when the hippie movement is in full swing, the sexual revolution is going full blast. How old are you then? Oh, let's see, 18, 20, 22 years old. What are you saying? No restraint. Dude, freedom of expression. No authority, right? Anti-establishment. Sometime on your own, Study the trajectory of crime rate, divorce rate, 
teen pregnancy, whatever. Look at that trajectory from the 1960s till today, and you'll see they've all skyrocketed. Now we can conclude, well, you know, Craig, human nature has changed since 1960. Human nature is different now than it was then. We could conclude that wrongly, or we could begin to ask, you know, did this approach to child rearing impact an entire generation? Dr. Spock said in a 1968 interview with the New York Times that he would be proud if the idealism and militancy of youth today were caused by my book. And just in case you've never heard of him and think, well, he's not very influential, Life magazine named Dr. Spock one of the 100 most influential people of the entire 20th century. And of course, that doesn't take into account everybody else who jumped on his philosophical bandwagon and wrote their own books. So the point is that few of us in this room have escaped his influence. Some of you are old enough that you might have actually raised your children using Dr. Spock's book. Or maybe you were raised by someone who was raised by Dr. Spock's book. Or you've just been influenced because you are parenting in a culture that has been influenced by Dr. Spock's philosophy. And of course, we're reaping the whirlwind right now, aren't we? As we look around at what's going on in the world. Call it freedom of expression or petulance. However you want to describe it. When people don't get their way, this is the way they act. If you don't like your peas, you don't have to eat them. And just yell and scream loud enough until somebody takes the peas away. It's just our culture. It's how we've been trained to react to things we don't like. Now let's circle back around. Whew. If you don't like the trajectory that God has for you, you may be tempted to protest until God gives you the one that you want. You may beg, you may plead, you may be even a little bit petulant. You'll want to think harshly of God for discipline because, well, you know, we just don't want to be disciplined. And so here's where we're getting all of this wrong. We discount the sovereignty of God, that he actually knows what he is doing. We believe that we, as children, know more and better than our all-wise Heavenly Father. We wrongly believe with our culture that if you dig deep enough, right here, if you dig deep enough, you're going to find pure gold. Because everybody is good at heart. But Jeremiah 17, 7 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. Why is that man blessed? The answer is in verse 9. Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You do not find gold if you dig deep enough. And I wish we had time to consider this morning the, the political and, and policy disasters that ensue because people refuse to believe that God knows what he's talking about in this. God says we're not good at heart. They say we are good at heart. Human beings who are not basically good at heart will be blessed when we trust the one who is. And we're blessed when we submit to the trajectory that he knows is best for us 
and will most effectively build his kingdom. Don't resist because we cannot see how it could possibly be good because the Lord can see how good it can be. All right, we need to have some grace in this story, don't we? I'm tired of preaching. (laughs) Verse two, here's the story. You shall not cross the Jordan. Well, what does God allow Moses to do? He allows him to see the promised land. And so Moses climbs up on Mount Nebo, this high mountain. And the Lord meets him there. And the Lord says to Moses, look. And Moses looks from one end of the other, from one end of the promised land to the other. And he, he sees it all. And then something happened. It's almost as if God said, you think this is good? Let me show you something better. And after Moses had seen the beauty of that land, his eyes closed in death. And when he opened them, he was looking at the glory of the Lord and the glory of heaven. So he went from a glimpse of the land to the glory of the Lord. And I think what a blessing it was for Moses. No matter what he wanted, no matter what he thought was best, the Lord knew better. And in the end, God even redeems Moses' sin for his good. Think of the burden from which Moses is released. He didn't have to cross the Jordan with these people. He didn't have to endure their new complaints and their fresh rebellion. Moses didn't have to endure one more battle. He didn't have to hold his arms up because when he let his arms down, his people lost the battle. Moses doesn't have to do that again. He wasn't going to have to walk around Jericho seven times and then dive out of the way when the walls came a-tumbling down. And then off to the next city of Ai, a crushing defeat. Why? Oh yeah, Achan and his sin. Guess what? Not Moses' problem because God's trajectory was better for him. But that's not all. We're almost done. Turn to Matthew, will you? Matthew chapter 17. This is so great. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now, where was this mountain of transfiguration? The promised land, right? And so here's Moses standing on this mountain he wasn't permitted to walk on according to his trajectory. But here he is now. He's standing on it in a much better way. He's standing there with Jesus surrounded by the glory of the Lord. I call that an upward trajectory. What about you? 
though Moses couldn't see it. As always, it's best for us to follow Jesus' trajectory. I always love to end with Jesus, so let's end with Jesus. What was his trajectory? If you want to put it in stages, we know what stage one was, right? He had, he had existed with the Father from all eternity past in the glory of heaven. That was stage one. But then we know what Jesus did. He, he came to earth. And from earth, Jesus went down further to the disciples' feet. Probably the lowest position he could have ever taken on this earth. Because even wealthy, influential people were, were crucified for insurrection. But foot washing? Even some slaves were not required to wash the feet of someone else. But there we find Jesus kneeling at the feet of his disciples. It didn't seem right to them. And that's why Peter said to Jesus, no, uh -uh, you won't wash my feet. But Jesus said, yes, I will. And he did. And he reoriented Peter and all the disciples and their trajectory away from glory seeking to serving and giving to others. But it took a downward trajectory on the part of Jesus to accomplish it. It required a downward trajectory on the part of Jesus to set an example of what should mark the true believer in Christ from this moment on. It was a pivotal moment for all that it means to be Christian. A pivotal moment for why believers in Christ from that moment on will be motivated to do what we do in this world for Jesus' sake. To love the Lord our God with all our heart and to serve others. But it could only be done because Jesus insisted, yes, I will wash your feet. We, we have to allow the Lord to do those things that he knows are right and good. Things we have not sought, things we have not imagined, things we didn't even know could be, ideas that seem to live in some sort of alternative alternate reality because we, we can't even imagine them, but God knows them. And when I say allow the Lord to do that in us, I just mean don't force the point, don't resist, because guess what? In the end, the Lord will win. Okay, that's a little spoiler. The Lord's going to win in the end. It's true that your life, your life, listen, listen, your life is of utmost value to the Lord. My life is of utmost value to the Lord. We are his unique creation. The Lord loves us. That's why he died on the cross for us. He wanted us to know peace. He wanted us to have hope. He wanted us to have the ability to dwell for all eternity in the presence of the one and only true and living God. And the only way to do that is through him. That's how much he loves you. This is also true. You are not everything to him, and neither am I. The Lord is at work advancing his kingdom here in this place and throughout the world. So don't be delusional. 
in thinking that you're going to get in the way of that when you don't participate with God. When you resist and you say, I will cross the Jordan. No, you won't. Or you will not wash my feet. Yes, he will. Proverbs 19, 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So let's allow the Lord to set the trajectory. Higher and higher? Maybe. I don't know. Lower and lower? Maybe. I don't know. However, he gets the glory and advances his kingdom. That's the way it'll be. You and I, we stand on the banks of the Jordan right now. We're standing. But make no mistake, you will cross over. You will cross over the Jordan if you're a believer in Christ. And like Matthew, you're going to stand with the Lord in the presence of his glory. Now that'll make any trajectory worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Lord, thank you for story. Story not in that it's made up, but it's true. You've re- recorded for us these really true events and the lives of real people, especially the life of Moses. Lord, teach us through his life what it means to submit our wills to you. Thank you that you show us that even mighty men like Moses, still considered one of the greatest leaders of all time, he struggled, he sinned. He had to actively engage his faith. And even then, Lord, he at times seemed to oppose your will for him. Help us learn from his life not to do that. Lord, to submit to you. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your love for us and your sacrifice for us. We thank you for your example. Not higher and higher and more glory and glory. No, Lord, you came down, down, down. Because that's what was required for you to change the world and to give us life to set an example for us. So, Father, give us willing hearts that wherever you lead us, whatever trajectory you have for us, will follow you. Because we know it's only temporarily that we are on this side of the Jordan. Soon we will be with you forever and ever. Motivate us, encourage us with that good news of that good truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.